Hello again. Uh, so this morning we are going to be spending our time in Revelation 3. We're going to be hearing three mini-sermons. Um, so the first of which will be chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through to 6. And if you're looking on the Pew Bibles, it's on page 862. And you can also follow on the screen. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, good morning. It is great to be here. My name is Luke. I'm a member of the 6pm congregation and we are about to spend seven minutes in the church of Sardis. One thing I like to do when I'm just out and about in Sydney to pass the time is to look at those open house signs. I find them fascinating because they always make the place look so good. They use their magic to make the rooms look bigger. If there's a pool, it literally looks like the ocean. If there's a view, it's just incredible. But I wonder how we would feel if we moved into one of these homes, only to find out there was no kitchen, no bathroom, no laundry, nothing. Just idyllic-looking rooms with nothing inside. While certainly unrealistic, if it happened, I think we would be incredibly disappointed. Here was this thing that looked so good, only in the end, to be not good at all if it couldn't do the job of being a home. And I wonder if sometimes we treat ourselves like these open home signs. We all want people to look at us and think we're good. We all want people to speak well of us. If all of us came with a brochure in our pocket that we give out when people meet us, we'd want it to make us look as good as we possibly could be. Well, today in the passage, we read of a church, the Church of Sardis. And the Church of Sardis is the type of church that would give out an incredible brochure. It would be amazing to read. When people spoke of the church of Sardis, they were in awe of them. It was a church that looked alive in their faith. A church that looked active in their service. It looked like they were doing all the right things. Like they were walking the walk. But very quickly in verse 1, we see these people were not looking with the eyes of Jesus or the knowledge of Jesus. As Jesus says, I know your deeds. 
They were just looking at the brochure. But Jesus was inside the house. And inside, he said there was nothing, no substance. For we see in verse 2, their works are not complete in the eyes of God. You see, their works, they weren't an outworking of a faith that was alive. No, their works were just a vain attempt to puff up their reputation as if they might ride that into salvation. They might tile the pool, maybe they'll paint the house, but they saw no point of building anything on the inside. They weren't concerned for the person who sacrificed to buy them, know just how they looked to the people walking by. For they had traded the good message of salvation that leads to repentance for a proud faith in their reputation, as we see in verse 3, when they are told to remember and repent. You see, they knew they were seen as good, so they thought they were good. They knew they were seen as saved, so they didn't even bother to look at the judgment that was coming against them, like a thief in the night. Now, I grew up in a church not far from here, just in North Sydney. It was an Anglican church there. And I must admit, everyone seemed to talk about Christchurch. I was young then, so I heard a lot about the youth program, a great youth program. Heard a lot about the ministry team, a great ministry team, the congregation's were large, it sounded like a great church, and rightfully so, it had a great reputation. But this letter the church of Sardis reminds us that with a good reputation comes a dangerous warning. For Christ is not coming to judge our reputation. It tells us he is coming to judge our heart. And the most dangerous part of a good reputation is it makes us complacent. It deceives us into thinking we are alive until judgment comes like a thief in the night. A good reputation without a faith that is alive is much like the turkey eating well the day before Thanksgiving. Well, if this is us, luckily there is a simple message. We need to wake up. If we spend more time caring about what our neighbours think of us than Christ Jesus, we need to wake up. If we care more about what our growth group views us as than Christ Jesus, we do need to wake up. Because judgment is coming, but not judgment of the brochure. Judgment of the house. Not judgment of your reputation. It will be judgment of your heart. Well, if this is the message today for us, what are we to do with it here at Christchurch? I have three application points. First one, let us not be complacent. We do have a good reputation, but with that comes a warning. This temptation will face us. Test your heart. Have we traded complacency in our reputation for our initial faith and love of Christ Jesus? Test your heart. Secondly, as the passage says, 
Christ's warning needs to be our response in verse 3. Remember the good gospel and repent. The Christ Jesus would come and die for us on the cross, that we would go from enemies to sons. This message of grace and love for us. We must remember the gospel and repent. We must use the gospel not to decorate ourselves on the outside, but allow it to renew us from the inside. And finally, we need to look forward. And this is beautiful. We'll finish in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, I uh, think there were a lot of uh, correlations between the church in Sardis and, and the church here today. So uh, let's read on and find out what we can learn from the church in Philadelphia. We're reading from verses 7 through to 13, page 863 in the Bibles. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Welcome, my name is Peter Loy. For those who do not know me, uh, this is letter six in a series of seven letters in Revelation and it's a letter written to the, Philadel uh, the Christians in Philadelphia. And it's a letter of encouragement to those Christians to stand firm and to trust the promises of God, a God who makes and will keep his promises. In verse 7, the key of David is actually a reference to Isaiah 22, verse 22, where David's Lord, the king, the one following David, the Messiah, the Christ, one who David will bow down to, which is Jesus, opens the door of salvation to all people through his death and resurrection. It's a door which has been opened by grace and not by works. No human can close this door on the gospel message that now both Jew and Gentile can know the true and living God through salvation in Jesus 
and that being in no other name. The gospel message has been going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the entire world, St Ives, and cannot and will not be stopped. But what were these Christians bragging? Were they trusting in their own power or status or religious acts? Actually, how are they described in verse 8? Actually, of having little strength. Little strength in the eyes of the world, of course. Placing their trust in a man who was crucified and rose to life, who claims to be Lord of all, sounds foolish to the world. Arrogant. It sounds weak. But what did characterise these Christians in Philadelphia? Well, they had three characteristics. First of all, was that they kept my Jesus' word. They obeyed the teachings of Jesus, the new commandment where Jesus says to love one another. They were saying no to ungodliness, turning their back on sin, idols, serving one another, living a life worthy of being called a Christian, being washed, excuse me, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. The second characteristic, they didn't deny the name of Jesus. But I want to state it in a more positive way. They continue to acknowledge that Jesus is their Lord, despite opposition and persecution, for they were not ashamed of the gospel message. The great temptation then, as it is for us today, in Australian society, is not to acknowledge we are Christians for fear of being mocked or ridiculed. Whether it's Christians suffering in Philadelphia due to persecution from Jewish people or Christians throughout history, you and I, let's continue to say that we are followers of Christ, that we trust in Jesus as our Lord. For there's going to be a day of reckoning where all people, willingly or unwillingly, will acknowledge Jesus, God's love is faithful, acknowledge that God is faithful to his chosen people. And God promises to keep his chosen people safe from the hour of trial. For there will be a time where the whole world is going to be tested for those who live on the earth. First, first characteristic, they kept Jesus' word. Secondly, they didn't deny the, uh, the name of Jesus. And the third characteristic is they endured patiently. And I've got to say, I'm an expert at this because I catch the trains. <laughs> For those people who catch trains, you may hear over the PA something like this. Trains are running late and out of timetable order. Sydney trains regret the delay and any inconvenience caused. See, I know the train's going to come. I wait patiently. Maybe it's going to come sooner than what I think or later than what I think. But what do I do? I endure patiently because the train will come. And that's how we should respond as Christians for the return of Jesus. Wait patiently, endure patiently, without grumbling or complaining, willing to serve Jesus. In verse 11, what does Jesus say? I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. One of the great promises is that Jesus will return. And that's great news for every Christian. God's son is returning and the fullness of his kingdom will be revealed for all people. For Christians will physically see our saviour Jesus and as Lord. As we endure patiently, what are we told to do? Hang on to what you have. Hang on to what you have. The truth of the gospel. Responding as these Christians did and not being deceived by fine arguments. 
actually, as you read the, this verse here, the word is overcome, and that's the same challenge as we've been reading in, these, uh, in the churches, to overcome the difficulties, to endure as we stand as Christ alone, stand firm in the gospel, for there's going to be a time where God will never leave his people. For there's going to be a time, as verse 12 teaches, and Revelation 21, the good news of a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, that will have resurrected bodies just as Jesus did, just as his disciples saw, we too also will have. For that day is coming where God will physically be with his people for all eternity, where there will be no more sin and no death. And that really is the definition of heaven, is it not? The old earth will pass away, the new earth will arise, and God isn't slow in acting on his promises. So as Christians, yes, we're in his kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. We'd be marked by God's Holy Spirit responding to Jesus' word, loving as Christ did, as we patiently wait for Jesus' return. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be motivated this morning to respond to what we've heard. Let us respond in godliness as these Christians did in Philadelphia, with the eternal hope, with the eternal anticipation of this new Jerusalem. This letter ends with a refrain we've heard previously, that is, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But let us be more than listeners. Let us be people who respond in godliness and holiness, as the Philadelphians did 2,000 years ago. Amen. Well, I'm uh, starting to have a revelation about revelation in that uh, I think if we hold on to what we know and we trust in Christ, we are promised incredible things. In Sardis, we saw that if we hold on to Christ, we will walk with him in white when the day comes. And in Philadelphia, um, we will be made pillars in the temple of God. So let's continue and read about the church in Laodicea and see what we're promised there. Uh, so we're reading from verses 14 through to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those of those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
Hello, I'm Jamie. I've been coming to Christchurch for around 15 years. I came to the youth program in year seven. I'm a member of Night Church, and I'm now working here as a ministry trainee. How good is that video? Summer camps are awesome. For the parents in the room, I'm going to show you a little secret video. This is me and my friends 11 years ago. There are a lot more great things that go on, a lot more things about Jesus, but this is some of the stuff that maybe doesn't quite make it back to the parents. Throughout youth, we had some beautiful friendships and great memories, and yet, so many of them are not believers today, even some in that video. And not because they read an atheist book that they found the Bible was full of loopholes, no, these guys stopped coming because they slowly fell more and more in love with the world. They became apathetic to the majesty of Jesus. Put in the language of today, they were neither hot nor cold, they were lukewarm. Now some commentators think that being, luke, that being cold is a good thing, that it's useful for drinking and, and soothing, so it's, so it's all about the use However, I think based on the language like wretched and pitiful, I think the lukewarmness mentioned in this letter refers to a church that is spiritually closed off to Jesus. Hence, his outside knocking, leading to be led in, seen in verse 20. I think it refers to a half-hearted attitude towards Christ. Remember, this was written to a church, to people attending and getting involved, seeming like they were hot. And yet, in the long run, they fell away reflecting they had never truly turned back to God and still relied on themselves for their worth and meaning. I think the warnings from my experience at youth are really relevant today, as I'm sure we have all seen someone we love, someone who attended church and seemed hot, fall away. I think it's also relevant for us here in St. Ives because the parallels between this ancient church and us here today on the North Shore are quite alarming. The context of Laodicea was one in the cultural hub of the Greek world, one which had nice clothes and all the designer brands. It was oozing wealth because of their location on major trade lines. And as such, they had the temptation to flirt with the world. They say in verse 17, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. Their worth was their wealth. And it was slowly draining them of true life. Instead, they were wretched and poor. Now, according to the census data, we have higher weekly incomes than the rest of Australia by $1,000 a week, and our houses are more than half a million more than the national average. If you live here or around, you're probably pretty wealthy. And the reality of us having wealth means we should be wary. Being wealthy means it's easy to think, I do not need a thing, because we have so much but there is so much we need. We are in desperate need for forgiveness from our sins and we need our fellow Christians to help point our sins out to us. This church in Laodicea thought they were excelling at life because their pride was in their wealth and yet they were in danger of being spat out for being spiritually lukewarm. 
Like the later scenes, my youth friends were members of the church. They would say grace at mealtimes. They even ran Bible studies, and now they've fallen away. They may have been involved in church, but their hearts were not fully committed to Christ. There was no intentionality about their attendance. Church was merely a thing they went to if they were free, not a lock in their week that everything else fits around. Growth Group was a place to hang out with friends and have fun, not a place to, to share burdens or pastoral care and vulnerably confess wrongdoing or mutual accountability. Like we heard from James Macbeth, this is what growth groups are there for. Sign up for one. My friends didn't want to be called out for their sins, nor do they want to genuinely repent. Now there's a famous quote by this pretty smart guy called James Clifton. (laughs) And he says, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't be a Christian church and tolerate sin. I don't know if you've heard that recently, but if not, you can watch last week's service. Um, He's walking around looking like a barista selling lukewarm coffees today. You can't be a Christian and be okay with your sin. So are you troubled by your sin? If this is you, if you can see apathy creeping into your life or feel yourself cooling into a lukewarm faith, heed this warning to the Laodicean church. Turn back to Christ. But if you are feeling burdened already and feeling flat and deflated, yet again I've come to church, I've been made to feel guilty about all the things I haven't been doing, take heart, Christ does not leave us in that guilty, helpless state. He is the solution. Look at the pairs that exist in this rebuke in verses 17 and 18. We are poor, but if we come to Christ, we can become spiritually rich. He provides. We are naked, but Christ offers us pure white clothes to cover us. He provides. We are blind, but Christ offers us salve so we can see. He provides. Everything we lack, Christ provides. Nowhere is it us providing for ourselves. It is all him taking every area we are deficient in onto the cross and showing us through the resurrection that he has restored us in all of those said areas. We may feel defensive with Christ's rebuke, and he is certainly stern and calls people out for what they lack. But we see in verse 19 that he does it out of love. He rebukes and disciplines the later scenes and us out of love. And the right response to this rebuke, like we see in verses 17 and 18, is quite simply to turn back to Christ. He is outside knocking. Let him in. Let him back into your life and you will be victorious. If we turn back, we will dine with the ruler of God's creation. If we turn back, we will be seated on the throne of the faithful and true witness. If we turn back, our shameful nakedness will be covered by the all-powerful Amen. If you have genuinely turned back to God, you have no need to fear being spat out of Christ's mouth. You are saved. But if you are merely a Sunday Christian and are going through the motions of life with no regard for Christ in your day-to-day actions, please heed this warning. You may be lukewarm. Come to Christ for his soul so you may truly see. Amen.